Well, welcome to episode seven of Spheres of Influence. This is a semi-weekly um, podcast where we talk about religion, culture, and politics and try to discuss them in a civil manner. On this seventh episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, the working class. Um, but before we do that, um, I do hope that people who are listening to this will be able to uh, rate the podcast if they are listening to it, especially on iTunes. And um, regardless of what platform you are listening on, I hope that you will consider subscribing. Subscribing makes it easier for other people to find it. And um, also, it would just be good um, to have subscribers. But um, again, it does make it easier for other people who may be looking for a podcast like Spheres of Influence to be able to um, find it easily. And by subscribing, you make it easy for yourself and you make it easy for others to find this podcast. If you have any questions, um, please send it to the email that is located in the show notes. Um, and you can also go to the website at sphearesofinfluence.org um, to ask some questions. I'd love to hear what you are thinking about some of the more, more recent episodes. Um, and don't be surprised if I respond back to you um, in a coming uh, future episode. So uh, tonight we wanted to talk about um, the working class. And there's a little bit of a background about me. Um, I may have said this earlier, is that I hail from Flint, Michigan. Uh, Flint is not a town that people really, I don't really need to say much for people not to know about it. They, everyone knows about it. Um, especially because of the movie Roger and Me, but um, and, of course, more recently because of the Flint water crisis. Um, Flint is a town probably hovering around 100,000, maybe around 95, 96,000 now. When I was born in 1969, um, it was a town of almost 200,000. It was a town um, that had... It seemed like it had a GM factory on every corner. Um, both my parents worked for GM. Uh, my mom worked for 25 years for AC Sparkplug. My dad worked for 39 years um, at Buick. Um, both of those plants are gone now. Um, there was a time, I think in the late 70s, that there were about 80,000 people in the Flint area that worked for GM which then means that there are probably hundreds of thousands of others that worked for um, businesses that were supported by GM or maybe supported G GM in various ways. So Flint is very much a changed town. It is um, a town that, especially I think in the 2000s, really hit some bad um, economic fortunes. It has been um, under state um, control a few times during that time period since the 2000s. Um, 
And some of that is a combination, of course, like I said, the economy itself and that the the factories, most of them are gone, not all of them, but, but a good chunk of them. But also that um, there was also bad leadership. Um, and so there's kind of a mixture of that that just made for a, a toxic brew. But Flint, in some ways, is a kind of, it's a microcosm of Detroit. And like a lot of cities in the Rust Belt from Flint or Detroit or Youngstown, um, Peoria, there are these cities that were at one time thriving areas. Um, There were lots of working class people who worked in factories or worked in the coal mine or worked in steel mills. And um, that is not the case anymore. And that has had an impact in many ways. In Flint, for instance, is the crime rate. Um, The crime rate went sky high. I remember in my senior year, maybe in 1986, we had just a really high murder rate. And I would say probably since the late 80s, Flint has had really high crime rates. And that's because of the loss of jobs and the economy going not so well. In other parts of the country, the problem isn't necessarily crime as much as it is drugs. If you look in places like Ohio, um, you will see basically that's kind of where the meth um, problem arose. And then later on, it was where the opioid crisis arose. And so that's kind of where, where that has been happening. So that's kind of the scene I want you to understand is that there is a part of America that isn't always doing as well and has not done as well for quite some time. Um, A lot of those places are in the Midwest, but you will find pockets throughout the country. Um, I want to start off kind of the main thrust of this um, argument with a story. It's a story about a person named Alex. Uh, Alex was a worker in a factory in Ohio. And he came down with the flu one day. It was bad enough that it put him out of commission. He was out of work for three days. So he comes back to work. He's armed with a doctor's note. He explained why he called in sick. His plant manager, who was a new person, did not accept the note because the doctor basically never said when Alex could come back to work. So Alex went to the doctor, got a revised note. And this time, the plant manager was saying to him that he should have called in each day that he was out. Alex explained that in the past, calling in on the first day was was sufficient. And the plant manager disagreed. And since he took off three days unannounced, he was now on a five-day suspension. So, probably can guess what's going to happen. 
few days later, the plant manager calls him in and tells him that, well, they were looking for something better. So he was fired. Now, in the past, his union would have gone to bat for him. But the plant was now under new management, and his union rep didn't have the relationship that he once had with plant management, so he couldn't really help Alex. And since the firing, Alex has gone from job to job in hopes of finding stable work. Now, his union job offered security. It offered, allowed him to buy a house, to raise a family, and to have a good life. And now, in his current situation, he has to work much harder, probably for much less, to keep that security. And I would say that that's a very similar story to what went on in Flint. Flint, the, the auto plants paid well. Um, they paid enough that you could have a nice house, not a great house, but a good house, and to have a middle-class existence. Now, we've had for the last, we've just kind of now ended for the last four years, this probably horrible experience in the American experiment of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, he stumbled and he bumbled and he lied. And frankly, he damaged American democracy. But even with all of that, Trump isn't the problem. He is the symptom of something that is wrong with our political system. His win in, 19, in 2016 and his nightmare of administration following should have been a time for political elites to really do some thinking, to do some introspection, and to determine where the system has let people down. Now, the story that I just told about Alex was told by Amber Lapp. She wrote that for American Compass. That is a new think tank, a conservative think tank, that is very actually concerned about the working class and how to better support them. And I think what happened to Alex is one of the reasons that we have Donald Trump as president. We can all breathe a sigh of relief that Trump is gone. And even though we may disagree with him, we are thankful that we have a some, somewhat normality with Joe Biden. But political elites, and I mean elites in both parties, really need to stop and think about how this happened. Because how they governed may have just been the reason that Donald Trump happened. But the thing is, is that I don't think anyone from Never Trump, Never Trumpers, to Democrats, both moderate and liberal, have really learned anything. And let's just agree that it was pretty hard 
to learn anything because Donald Trump is like watching a traffic accident. You just couldn't look away. His antics stirred everyone up. And the thing is, is that it left the left in America and a portion of the right, the never Trump conservatives, in permanent outrage mode. And we can be, let's be honest, that Donald Trump was easy to get outraged about. But I think we have missed something because in our outrage and this fear that American democracy was at a danger point, we missed why did we get to this point? Because we, it didn't get to this point by accident. It wasn't because basically everyone was racist. Something changed. Now, I also have to include my own self that, you know, I get focused and everyone else got focused on what Trump has done that we forget what were the underlying reasons that brought him to power? Trump is president. Trump was president for a reason. He was the commander in chief for this reason. Both political parties, both people, both political parties had nothing to offer the electorate especially among the lower, middle, and working classes. I still believe that those people were upset and were starting to look for someone, anyone, to listen to them. And that someone was Donald Trump. And yes, we all know he's a crook. We all know that he's a liar. We all know he's a jerk. We all know he's a racist. We all know he's an authoritarian creep. But he still was able to say the right words in 2016 to get people to vote for him. And even with all of the baggage on him, he was still actually able to get more votes four years later. As long as his opponents don't attend to the problems that are facing the lower middle class with solutions, Trump or someone like him will continue to be a problem. The problem here is, as I said, the working class, but we don't really want to deal with that and to deal with those Trump voters. Because we don't, we don't want to think of them as people who might be searching or looking for something. Instead, we want to look at them as racist. And we think that they are nothing more than racist rubes that want to take America back to the 1950s. This is something that Tanahasi Coates wrote. He wrote back in the fall of 2017, and he said basically that Donald Trump was the first white president. And what he meant by that was that he is a president that embodies white supremacy. 
and that his voters were really dealing with racial animus and that they saw Trump as a vehicle for their expression. And this is what Coates said. The triumph of Trump's campaign of bigotry presented the problematic spectacle of an American president succeeding at best in spite of his racism and probably because, possibly because of it. Trump moved racism from the euphemistic and plausibly deniable to the overt and freely claimed. This presented the country's thinking class with a dilemma. Hillary Clinton simply could not be correct when she asserted that a large group of Americans were endorsing the candidate because of bigotry. The implications that systemic bigotry is central to our politics, that the country is susceptible to such bigotry, that the salt of the earth Americans whom we lionize in our culture and politics are not so different from those same Americans who grin back at at us in lynching photos, that Calhoun's aim of a pan-Asian embrace between workers and capitalists still endures were just too dark. Leftists would have to cope with the failure yet again of class unity in the face of racism. Incorporating all of this into an analysis of America and the path forward proves too much to ask. Instead, the response has largely been an argument aimed at emotion, the summoning of the white working class, the emblem of America's hard scrabble roots, the inheritor of its pioneer spirit as a shield against the horrific and empirical evidence of trenchant bigotry. Now, I don't want to say that Coates is totally wrong, because I will be honest that I think that there are a good chunk of people who voted for Donald Trump and people who would basically make up the current base of the Republican Party are racist. But that doesn't mean that that's the only reason. And I think we want to think that that's the the animating reason is basically people were racist. And you can be racist and there can be other problems. Like I said, I don't doubt that there are Trump supporters who are racist and xenophobes. If you cannot see that, then you have a problem. But it's hard for me to understand that a nation that elected its first black president not once, but twice, and then goes to vote for President Trump is all because of simply of race. There has to be something more, something that would make people who voted for Obama go and pull the lever for someone who called Mexicans rapists. So what happened? What happened to make the American electorate choose Donald Trump? And I think what happened was is that Donald Trump exposed something that we Americans are loath to talk about, and that's class. And as hard as it is, I think, to really have a discussion about race in America, we don't like to talk about class. We like to pretend it doesn't exist. And part of that, I think, especially, I think, among the the right right of center is that we want to believe that anyone can make it, can, you know, the old Horatio Alger story, 
And so we don't want to talk about classes because classes then could say that people are locked into these certain levels. But class does exist in America. It shows itself in how the middle and upper income Americans look at a low income Americans, especially those in this case who are poor and white. And one thing I should add, when people talk about the working class, the working class is not just white. It is of all colors. As I said, I grew up working class. I am an African-American. However, it is also important to talk about this part of the working class because they are such key to the Trump voters. But getting back to um, how people look at the working class, I think it's the well-educated in American society that tend to view the working class with contempt. And I remember this quote from the writer, British writer Clive Crook. Um, he came from Britain, from the UK. UK is incredibly class conscious, but he was not prepared for how the working class were treated here in the United States. And this is what he wrote. I'm a British immigrant and grew up in a northern English working class town, taking my regional accent to Oxford University and then to the British civil service. I learned a certain amount of my own class consciousness and other people's snobbery. But in London or Oxford from the 1970s onward, I never witnessed the naked disdain for the working class that much of America's metropolitan elite finds permissible in 2016. When my wife and I bought some land in West Virginia and built a house there, many friends asked why we would ever do that. Jokes about guns, banjo music, inbreeding, persons without teeth, and so forth often followed. These Washington friends, in case you were wondering, are good people. They'd be offended by crass, cruel jokes about any other group. They deplore prejudice and keep an eye out for unconscious bias. More than a few object to the term illegal immigrant. Yet somehow they feel the white working class had it coming. The Democrats were once known as part of the working class. Um... But in a way, they have shed that title. They have become, in some ways, a bifurcated party. This was, in some ways, the coalition of the ascendant that was talked about when Barack Obama became president. It's the coalition of upscale whites and then persons of color. But there was also a problem among those who got beaten in 2016 by Donald Trump and to an extent, never Trumpers, um, the tribe that I belong to. There was very seldom they talked about the working class. The only one that I think really did was David Frum. And unfortunately, I don't think he has talked about that as much anymore. There has been, I think, in, in some of the circles that I have ran into, a tendency to look down on voters without college degrees. I think neither Democrats or never Trumpers have been very reflective about how Trump came to be. Both are involved in trying to punish the GOP and are trying to prevent another Trump, which makes sense. But I think 
they are also way too online to actually talk to Trump voters to understand them. And that's something that um, the writer Chris Arnotti, and if you are, are familiar with him, he is a, I believe it was a Wall Street um, investment banker that kind of left that and started to just drive around America to talk to the poor. And he has, I think he did a good job in just sitting down and listening to people in a way that very few do, and especially to the underclass, do that anymore. Liberals and a number of the never-Trumpers are stumped that after four years, Donald Trump could have gotten a single vote. But like I said, he actually even won more votes in 2020 than in 2016. For a lot of people, if someone voted for President Trump, the only reason has to be because of racism and white supremacy. But, of course, we know that that's not so simple. This is what Farrah Stockman, who is um, a writer for the New York Times, wrote when she decided to talk to some working-class Americans. Spend time at a dying factory and you see how difficult it can be to disentangle the two. And she followed a number of steelworkers who were in Indiana and they were from across the racial spectrum, black, white, men, women. Um, they dealt with the news of their factory shutting down. They, they saw how they had to train their Mexican counterparts and then they had to leave that job with all of the kind of good pay that it once had to look for jobs that paid half of what they made. And she talks to a man who was named um, um, Tim. He uh, had a father who was a very faithful Democrat, but NAFTA and trade with China made Tim loathe the Democrats and he decided to vote for Donald Trump. You can see why. You don't have to like it, but you can see why. As you know, as I said, I've been I'm from Michigan and the other part of Michigan that is also well known besides Flint or Detroit is Macomb County. Macomb County is a, it makes up Metro Detroit. Um, it is the county that's kind of to the east of Detroit. Um, it has always been a trending county. It is made up mostly of working class voters, mostly white. This is the, this is the place where the term Reagan Democrat was coined. Now in 20, in 2008 and 2012, Macomb County voted for Obama. And in 2016, it went for Trump. And Macomb, in some ways, proved to be a bellwether because then Michigan went for Trump. Now, Michigan this year, in 2020, went for Biden by a long shot. There was several hundred thousand votes over Trump. 
one of the interesting things about 2016 was that Hillary Clinton didn't spend much time in with the white working class in three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Those were the states that she lost, and that also helped her to lose the White House. Biden won back Michigan, and Macomb County stayed in the Trump camp, though. He won the county 53 to 45%. Many of the never-Trump conservatives, in fact, I think were more concerned that Republicans were now against free trade instead of wondering if too much trade is good for American workers after all. Now, I need to say, I agree with most Republicans. I think that free trade is good. I don't want to, us to close up the borders to, to free trade. I believe in free trade and free people. But too much trade, too much free trade, or not doing anything to help local workers isn't good. And I think what we have seen is that Donald Trump is, in many ways, was a warning to the body politic that there were huge swaths of American society that felt and feel left behind, and they longed for a populace that was going to fight for them. In the aftermath of the 2016 race, there was a sale of a nearly 20-year-old book that went through the roof. It was by Richard Rorty. He had already actually had passed away nine years earlier. But it was this fascinating book called Achieving Our Country, and I've been reading it myself. He published it in 1998, but there are three paragraphs in there that I think seem to predict 2016. Um, And I have these quotes. Members of labor unions and unorganized, unskilled workers will sooner or later realize that their government is not even trying to prevent wages from sinking or to prevent jobs from being exported. At the same time, they will realize that suburban white-collar workers, themselves desperately afraid of being downside, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking around for a strong man to vote for, someone willing to assure them that once he is elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, overpaid bond salesmen, and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots. One thing that is very likely to happen is that the gains made in the past 40 years by black and brown Americans and by homosexuals will be wiped out. Jocular contempt for women will come back into fashion. All the resentment which badly educated Americans feel about having their manners dictated to by college uh, graduates will find an outlet. And I would say all of this has happened. The white working class in 2016 was followed by working-class people of color in 2020 and voting for Trump, and they are both upset at how the world has treated them. And the thing is, if you feel 
like you are down and out and feel like you are pushed up against a wall, you're going to vote for a wannabe authoritarian, someone that is going to burn down the world that they believe is arrayed against them. That's why I am happy that there are some conservatives that are interested in trying to do something. There are groups like American Compass, and I don't think that they're perfect, but I think that they're trying to pay attention. I think that idea of agenda like Mitt Romney's willingness to come out with a child allowance is also something that can speak to these cla- the working class. We have to pay attention to these people. Because even though now we have Joe Biden in office, we had a warning call through Donald Trump. And we may not we may not be lucky the next time. And it won't simply be because he puts in new people or he changed, they change, the Republicans change voting laws. It will be because we didn't listen to some of our fellow Americans who were in pain. Towards the end of the play, Death of a Salesman, Linda Lohman the wife of the main character, Willie Loman, speaks about the hell that her husband is going through. And she says the following, and it is something, I remember reading this in high school, and this phrase has always just kind of stuck in my mind. And this is what Linda Loman says. I don't say he's a great man, Willie Loman never made a lot of money. His name was never in the paper. He's not the finest character that ever lived. But he's a human being. And a terrible thing is happening to him. So attention must be paid. He's not allowed to fall into his grave like an old dog. Attention, attention must finally be paid to such a person. Attention must be paid. For me, that phrase spoke to working class men and women who work hard and are being abused by things that are out of their control. Attention must be paid to people like Alex and to Tim and all the others who don't have college degrees but who work hard to make this country a better place. And if the political class doesn't pay attention to these people, we should not be surprised when someday they support a strongman. And when that strongman takes down the system, will make America a much worse place. Attention has to be paid. It has to be paid because the alternative is we will pay a price. And that price 
may well be our freedom. Well, I'd like to thank you for um, listening to episode seven um, as we talk about the working class. Um, I will be putting some notes, uh, I will be putting some links in the show notes um, to other articles you can read. I'd also like to hear your opinion. What do you think about this? Um, Send those to me via um, email. Um, And the email address is denman at gmail.com. So it's D-E-N as in den and then M-I-N-N, as in short for Minnesota, Denman, all one word, at gmail.com. Also check out the website at sphere'sofinfluence.org. And um, I'll be adding some more things. Right now it just has the, the uh, episodes. Um, but hopefully I'll be adding some articles. This is uh, what I've been re- uh, talking about today is based on an article that I wrote um, a few months ago. Um, so there will be some things in that. Um, I think I talked about this on uh, Sunday when at my last episode, I will be doing, um, some, uh, future episodes on religion that will talk about, uh, being a pastor during a pandemic and also the importance of, uh, mainline Christianity, mainline Protestant Christianity. So that's it for this time. Uh, Take care, everyone, and Godspeed. Mm